welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. Today we're talking to Dr. Christine Bonnet, a bioinformatician at the Sanger Institute. Christine's actually the reason that I'm involved with this podcast, so she introduced me to Catherine. She began as a wet lab scientist studying antimicrobial resistance. She's passionate about mentorship, running her own podcast, Your Digital Mentor. Her work ensures that education and pathogen research skills, specifically bioinformatics, is readily accessible globally. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. I'm really excited about you guys. Wow. Thanks for inviting me, Patrick. Thanks for coming. Thanks for suggesting me. No, I knew you'd be fun. It's a very audible sounds. You both have very nice audible voices. So I thought you'd be perfect together. So you're back at Sanger now. But you previously worked for Sanger on antimicrobial resistance mechanisms and you helped to develop TRADIS. Could you give a brief description um, of what antimicrobial resistance is and how TRADIS can be used to help investigate that? Uh, thanks, Catherine. Actually, first, uh, let me not, I didn't innovate this wonderful mechanism. Um, I actually came into it once it was developed at Sanger by Keith Turner and Gemma Langridge. So they pioneered that at Sanger. Um, so when I came into it, I came and did my postdoc there um, many moons ago. <laughs> so antimicrobial resistance refers to the anti and microbial. Microbial means pretty much any pathogen, essentially. And the anti is, of course, anything that inhibits it or stops it from growing. So antimicrobials covers actually antifungals, antivirals, antiparasitics, and antibiotics or antibacterials. Um, so just to start off there, and when you have a bacterial infection, for example, uh, or if it's viruses, you'll have an antiviral. When you go to the doctor, you'll be given an antibiotic usually. And what happens is maybe your fever will go down, it kills the bacteria. But when you have resistance to, to, to the drug, it means the, ba- the bacteria is completely doesn't respond to the drug at all and you won't get better, physically better. But what that actually translates to uh, biologically is there's three different mechanisms of resistance, mainly for bacteria. One is this, um, if you think about it in a lock and key mechanism where the lock is the target, for example, and the key is the drug. So the key the key would be like the free-flowing thing, the, the lock is staying stiff. So if you've got a one particular drug and you've got a the, the, the target, uh, normally the lock and key will fit perfectly. But what happens with the bacteria when it does three things? One, it mutates, so it will change the structure of the target so the key no longer works so it'll change its lock the key will no longer work so it becomes resistant and it's like haha i'm still growing the second uh thing that we'll do is um the bacteria will overproduce the target so you'll have a surplus of locks and let's say you have three keys and then it'll produce maybe 20 locks so by the time it's trying to unlock three of the doors there's lots of lots more bacteria and you kind of overwhelm the system with the bacteria so the 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 antibiotic isn't as um, efficient. And what happens also over time, the body breaks down the, the, the drug itself. So it stops being of use and the bug continues to grow happily in the system, in your body. Um, the third thing is um, it will produce a completely different target. So the lock stays the same, but then it'll just produce a whole new lock, right? It's, it's completely different, different target and it will probably activate that lock and stop using the particular door you're trying to target. So it'll start going through the back door, and then the the front the front door means nothing. So that's the three main types of mechanisms um, bacteria avoid 
um, treatment. So that's all of it encompasses uh, antimicrobial resistance. So it doesn't respond to the drug any longer. I love that metaphor. So how does Tradis help with with this? Uh, yeah, okay, so Tradis, uh, which stands for transposon directed insertion site sequencing, um, it's a bit of a mouthful and. If you Google it, it actually gets confused with TARDIS from, um, uh, what's that movie? What's that TV show called? Doctor Who. Doctor Who, exactly. So for a long time, our search engine optimization was the TARDIS. <laughs> We've worked hard over the years to get TARDIS up there. Um, I'll take E. coli, for example, because I know it um, like the back of my hand. So E. coli has roughly 4,000 genes. And genes are information that would that's coded in the DNA that will tell you or we'll tell the bacteria what it's coded for. So what you have with E. coli, if you've got 4,000 genes, we'll then have 4,000 cells. So it's intradis, it's millions of cells, but let's for simplicity and math's sake, let's work with 4,000. So I take 4,000 cells and I disrupt one gene in every of those 4,000 cells. So it means all 4,000 genes are disrupted when you pull that group of cells together because you can account for one disruption in exactly each gene. And when you're saying um, cell, you mean a single E. coli? A single E. coli okay. cell, yes, exactly. A single E. coli cell. That's a good one. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. So you've disrupted a gene in every single cell. When you put these together in a Petri dish, for example, or a flask, and they're all growing in unison together, but what happens when you challenge it, and by meaning challenge, where the test is anti antibiotic, so you add a specific antibiotic. Okay, so when you add the antibiotic, and it dies, that particular cell dies, meaning the gene that would have given it resistance was disrupted, so it can't save itself, for example. So um, in this instance, if you, I'll give you an example for uh, my favorite drug, so bear with me, I'm going to go heavy into science here, but Google is your friend at this point. Um, so one of the, the main drugs, when you go to the doctor, you might get penicillin, for example. This is a age-old drug. Um, by Alexander Fleming, uh, Sir Alexander Fleming. And um, so, yes, let's get that correct. And what happens when you add penicillin to an, uh, a bug that is sensitive to it is the bug will die, for example, right? But then if it becomes resistant, it produces a particular protein that causes it, uh, the, the, it kind of just stops the drug working, essentially, and the bacteria doesn't grow. So when you challenge these bugs and you've disrupted that particular gene that's um, that sort of cleaves up or sort of eats up the, the drug, it means that, oh, it'll, it suddenly becomes sensitive. And so when you assay, when you look at the sequencing from that point, you can see which genes are required in the presence of the drug or in absence of the drug. Um, and what Tradis, the power of Tradis here is you've assayed for all the genes. So we already know certain genes cause resistance. But what we don't know is there's other genes across the whole genome. So any of those other 4,000 or 3,999 genes could be required to also give you resistance. So they could be working in partnership. So this is what we're trying to see. Can we improve the current drugs that we have? Or can we create new targets that can work in tandem with the, the drugs that are already out there? So this is the whole point of Tradis. So just to clarify, so with Tradis, it's the laboratory technique for identifying yes. resistance. Okay. Yes. And you're looking at individual genes. So you're disrupting an individual gene um, and then you're applying the drug and then you can determine what impact that gene may, might have on the bacteria's response to the drug, right? Yes. By yes. knocking it out. 
Um, yes. So to look at, can you look at combinations of genes using this? Uh, yeah, so what you do then, if you've, in essence, when you assay for 4,000, you've done the combination, but what is required is then to go back and do some knockouts. So meaning you'll knock out, TARDIS itself, you can't knock out two genes in the same cell. So it does okay. one at a time. But what yeah. you then go, you follow up as a study is to knock out those two genes in one particular cell. And that you do by traditional cloning methods. Yeah. 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 A summer project I did just actually made much more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> they, they made me develop some computer model, but I had no idea what I was doing. And that's what it was. <laughs> it was awesome. something like that. <laughs> Retrospective epiphanies. I know. Wow, that would have been so helpful to know. So you were predominantly a laboratory scientist throughout your PhD and prior. And then at some point you shifted into computational biology. So when did that happen? Uh, When I came to Sang, I was doing TRADIS. So it was half lab to create the mutants and then the rest of it was analysis. So then I I kind of transitioned to dry lab since then. So Nice. How was that initially? Do you remember? Uh, I really enjoyed because <laughs> although wet lab allowed me to get my steps in, I really enjoyed the dry lab because you could spend a whole week creating mutants and then they didn't work. So then yeah. your whole week of work is this. It's a lot more satisfaction doing dry lab, I'll tell you that. But for those people who still love wet lab science, it's still there. I still love it. It's like riding a bike. So that's the best part about it. I can go back in and, and, and in the lab like no time has passed. Yeah. Yeah. What was the what was the learning curve like? Ooh, steep <laughs> and fast. <laughs> it was steep in the sense of Linux was steep the first yeah. few weeks. And then once you got that out of the way, uh, it's pretty much plain sailing after that. Yeah. I don't know if I feel like that, but I envy your plain sailing after you got through Linux. <laughs> no, That's there's amazing. There's some stumbles. There's some stumbles. <laughs> I would call our stumble. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> scripting a stumble, but yes, I think uh, you've the the limiting the lim- limiting factor was truly um, Linux. Yeah. yeah. So you came to study in the UK for your post for your PhD. Um, why the you what why Long, the UK? It's actually, uh, so I, it's actually longer. So I I did my almost all my higher learning. I came to the UK to do my A levels. Really? Um, yeah. Okay. I've been here for a really long time. No problem. So it's, it's not evident from out there. But um, so I came here on a scholarship, an academic scholarship to do my PhD, uh, to do my A-levels and then kind of stayed on. And then uh, for my PhD, also got another scholarship to do that. So I kind of just stayed in the UK for that. I mean, it's home by that point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Did you always want to go to the UK or just somewhere? Yeah, I think it was the plan to, I kind of like, at the time I didn't have any like, oh, I was following scientists at that age, I would be completely lying if I was. I just like science, <laughs> but not specific researchers at that point, you know. But um, yeah, I just, I think it was just giving me access to um, a different way of learning. And I th- I think, I will say this, um, this is not really scientific based, but in terms of life lessons or what they call soft skills, um, just being in a different environment and different learning, different type of learning environment, I gained certain skills that I think for me have helped me with specific, like for example, having assertive conversations. I think I've learned a lot from just being in the UK and the type of learning you you ex- experience as opposed to, well, I'm from Kenya, so different um, learning experience there. 
Did you did you think you'd be a bioinformatician back then? <laughs> no, did not. Yeah, I'm glad I am one. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain what a bioinformatician is to Ooh. someone who may not know? I didn't know that word until like three years ago. So it seems like it's two words, biology and informatics. And then you're like, what is informatics? Just think back to your IT department, information technology, right? And if you look up the um, definition of information technology, it's the use of computers to store, retrieve, transmit, and manipulate data or information. So that is totally from Google. Thank you very much. But it's essentially communicating with your operating system. And if you try and put those two words together, you're kind of understanding what the biology of an organism is and also understanding its system. In this instance, its form of information is DNA and then how that works as a whole system into proteins, into, I don't know, enzyme function, living function, and sort of understanding what makes up a cell, any cell, or in terms of viruses, any viral particle. So it's any organism, essentially. Lovely. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lovely definition. So um, you're currently working on the Juno project, which seems like this incredibly ambitious project that you'd obviously need some bioinformatics skills for. Can you describe some of the key aims of that project? Yeah, sure. Um, so Juno itself, um, the name actually comes from um, a goddess of mothers and babies. And what um, group B strep is, first of all, it's an opportunistic pathogen, meaning it normally lives quite harmoniously in our bodies, but can actually cause disease in babies. Um, and usually this, they get infected during the process of birth, right? So VB, and if you're keen, look up what VB is. I don't know if I can say it in the podcast. Um, but unfortunately, um, we see it has quite a high uh, mortality rate sometimes in, in, in kids or in babies, uh, but we see a specifically a high uh, mortality rate in low and middle income, low and middle income countries um, simply due to prevention strategies such as um, no or low screening in pregnancy. And in terms of mortality globally and why it's so important to look at this in a kind of holistic global view is that like most infectious diseases, um, if you if you don't know it's there, you wouldn't be looking for it, for example. So it's really hard to respond with any health in- intervention at all, as well as uh, if it's for it to be quick enough to be able to respond. Um, so what Juno aims to do is to sequence as many Group B strains or GBS strains as possible in as many countries as possible so we can really understand the type of diversity we have in these strains. And... Um, just to add in there, GBS has several strains that can cause disease. So knowing which ones are the ones that are disease causing can help us to improve intervention strategies. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much Juno. And within Juno, what's your role? So my role is uh, doing disseminating training. So I train our global partners Um in Juno. So at the moment, we are three years into a four-year project, and we've got samples from over 35 countries, and we've got project partners from 47 countries. So with them, we are in collaboration, and then we can um, bring data in from across the globe to be able to look at this kind of population dynamics or look at the diversity of Group B strains across the globe. And what I then do is I train our partners in bioinformatics. So to be able for them to analyze their regional data to put it into a global context. Do you, so originally when you were planning this and planning on training, uh, was the intention to go to these places and actually do trainings? 
Yes. So and so we had a pre-course survey that we designed, and from that we've ascertained there's uh, several different types of learners. One is there's the clinician who doesn't have time, so they just want to understand the basics of genomic sequencing and its impact on public health, for example. And then we've got uh, maybe epidemiologists or public health officials who want to do a little bit of um, training but don't want to get into the actual like scripting and things like that. So we've then d- kind of formed. Um, sort of design training that involves um, kind of web access. They can just pick and drop and throw it into web browsers and they get an answer. Um, And then the kind of third tier, third and fourth tier is face-to-face training so that we can go a little more deeply into uh, like things like Linux, for example, as we've discussed, that's a, that's really the limiting factor. And I think Linux and some of these courses are easier ta- taught face to face, so you can have an interaction with learners and um, just build those the rapport with people. We don't we want to have a, a, like a really great network with our project partners. And again, even we've seen from the uh, COVID pandemic, just having this type of global collaboration is super super cool and gets information out there fast. Um, to where it needs to be yeah I was also wondering so uh, you mentioned so there's face-to-face in there and then there's also the online training modules and I know that you're recording some of those in advance is that right yes Um, I think a little bit (laughs) Um, are you still so you're still intending to go to these places do you think it's going to be possible or more possible because of COVID to do more online training maybe as we're all more used to that so it's made the whole um, uptake of online training so much easier. I'll be honest, it really has. Um, but And that's where it's been a bit thankful that a lot more people are willing to do online or, and different like heavy heavy type of learning through online, through Zoom and things. Yeah. But hopefully at some point we can get to go face-to-face. But I guess that's not going to be... For a little while. Um, for a little while, yeah. yeah. So but we can still... I think there's ways when we're working with... Um, for example, advanced courses and scientific conferences, we can have kind of a uh, a module that we can translate that was supposed to be face-to-face to be um, virtual. Yeah. Do you see any sort of transferability of, so this is all happening for a group B streptococcus. Um, do you see any sort of cross-pathogen application, I guess? Oh yeah, like cross-pollination for yeah. sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, um, I think there's definitely cross-pollination that can occur. So uh, before Juno, there was a global pneumococcal sequencing project, which is GPS, that was going on and has been going on since uh, 2010. Um, and I think now that with the pandemic and people uh, and sort of public health officials, government, um, researchers, learning that, you know, you can all sequence. And to be honest, the global picture is the most important thing. So I think what we've learned from pneumococcus sequencing project and now Juno and also COVID, I think having a really, really strong network is is the main thing. So I think it can definitely be cross-pollinated across different bugs because bugs uh, travel independent of you or with you. So if you look at flu, for example, that's clearly nice and airborne. But also this network, just having that network existing and I think more specifically to specific bugs, I think that information is much faster and much more focused so that these meetings become more like, okay, this is what's happening. We're seeing an increase and in rise in X, Y, and Z bug. 
Um, so we have to have some sort of intervention, whether it be treatments or vaccines or preventing, truly, pretty much preventing the next pandemic, which is by having these networks, you'll know the next pandemic. You know, yeah. it's, we shouldn't be worried about the current pandemic. You're worried about the next one. So globalization started a long time ago and we all started sort of moving between countries and having sort of more open economics while the science in infectious disease and the sort of collaboration and globalization of that has lagged. And I'm wondering if watching uh, the impact of a pandemic that's disseminated around the globe on the science might shift uh, our research into other pathogens into being able to be more globalized and that to be more normal. Right? That would be the absolute silver lining yeah. to this 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 horrible 2020 and and henceforth. I think to be that's the that's the dream. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely. Uh, yeah, I think it's such a silver lining of the whole thing is that it sort of brought awareness of that because obviously it's been such a a problem <laughs> and maybe now things will shift. You started teaching when you got this role at Sanger, right? Or... Uh, no, I've been teaching uh, for uh, since my postdoc at okay. Sanger, so some 2015 or so. And what sort of shifted you into that? You've obviously stuck with it. Oh, yeah, I sort of fell into it. Uh, one of my uh, PIs at the time, I was working, Nick Thompson, he's been teaching at the path on the overseas courses for a really long time. And I remember he couldn't make one for some reason. I think it was one of the overseas courses and he couldn't make it. Um, and he asked me to to do it now. It usually goes differently. It's like you have to kind of teach on the Hingston courses before you go overseas. So I kind of cheated. Um, and then I ended up going to Uruguay and I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think I really like interacting with students and you have fun and you teach them. And uh, it's 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 really rewarding to get like by the end of the week when people ask you really complicated questions and you're like, wow, I don't even know how to do that. That's, that for me is the I know I've taught something if they're asking questions that surpass my knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that must have been a nice conversation, Nick, being like, I can't make it. Would you like a free trip to Uruguay? It was wonderful. Thank you so much, Nick Thompson. (laughs) So obviously you like the science and like the science for the sake of science. But I think in your mind from talking to you, it seems like there's sort of more of a public health application there as well. Um, Where do you think you've always had that? Do you sort of do you think you grew up thinking you wanted to do something in health? And then science was the way forward with that? Absolutely. So I've always been, I mean, I grew up in Kenya where um, the HIV rate at the time was really, really high. And um, it was about public awareness. I mean, that's actually the main campaign. And for me, the science is just interesting because I've always been interested in the micro of it. But I think getting people interested and knowing what science can do is really the way forward. And I've always had that. Um, And making science applicable so using applied science so not not only doing great research and doing good science making that work for some greater good i think that's like the i mean for it to sound like i'm part of the avengers team it's essentially (laughs) that i just want to make do do make make the world a better place through health yeah definitely you kind of are an avenger i'm gonna i'm gonna take that we're all avengers (laughs) so um so you at Sanger, you also work on the advanced courses. Are they separate to the training that's done through Juno? Uh, yeah, so, okay. um, yeah, the Juno GPS one. So I we've combined the training for GPS because they also have 
Um, I think it's over 60 partners globally. So I've combined the training for both of them, but I just use um, Group B Strep and uh, Strep Numo as examples. But actually anyone can do that training. It's free online. And um, again, working at the Sangha and also with advanced courses in scientific conferences, the, what I really enjoy um, teaching through these mediums is that it's free and accessible for everyone. I think for me, equitable access to bioinformatics um, research and training is super, super important. And this, these are my fundamentals. And I, um, through them, through ACSC, uh, which is Advanced Course in Scientific Conferences, um, there's two mediums I teach at. So I um, the first is the overseas courses that I teach on, and this is a face-to-face -face model, So, but now it's going into virtualization courses, and it's more traditional, so you apply, and I think it's 20 people per course, but these are run so frequently for anyone to use. Um, and uh, the aims of these courses are actually just to build capacity in biomedicine for research and healthcare communities in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Uh, the second one that I'm involved with is a partnership with FutureLearn and Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences. And these are completely in online. Uh, although I'm focused on the bacteria side, it's actually just a range of courses they provide uh, from biomedical, genomics, bioinformatics. Um, and these are free to learners everywhere in the world to take almost any time in the world. Um, hopefully our courses will be open from uh, this year, so meaning you can join them whenever you can and we'll have an FAQ. But when they're open, you have um, developers like us who are on there to help facilitate the course. So yeah, I recommend. And they're really nice intro courses and general courses. So get on it, go to the ACSE website and you'll find them. Cool. Yeah. It was actually the first time I saw your face was on one of those courses. Oh, really? Oh, I remember <laughs> we exchanged emails. I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> hello. <laughs> So um, teaching's obviously always been a passion and it seems like it's been quite consistent over the last few years. So you've started this mentoring podcast. How did the idea for that come about? Uh, yeah, thanks. So the podcast itself, um, it's called Your Digital Mentor Podcast. Uh, and the podcast was a result of a mentorship contest that was held um, in 2019 late 2019 uh, by the TDR. It's a combination of TDR and session. TDR is a program for research and training in tropical diseases. And SESH um, stands for the Social Entrepreneurship to Spur Health. Uh, this is a, it's a crowdsourcing group uh, whose focus is in improving health. And what happened was um, when I submitted the um, the application, I was listening to lots of podcasts, as I said, from commuting, and I'd benefited from really great mentors, especially at the Sanger. And I was like, oh, everyone should have access to these type of conversations. Why not just us? So initially, it was just to interview uh, people I like, <laughs> but then it sort of expanded um, and into a really, really important uh, bit of kit there that's just giving um, learners a mentorship you'd, you'd get from like a, a formal mentorship scheme. Uh, but we'll hopefully get into season two in a bit longer. But this was obviously a, a, a baby and kind of was made possible by some really great women in STEM. If you don't mind, I'll just list them here. Go um, for that's it. <laughs> Alice Matimba, Isabella Malta, Emanuela Opong, Catherine Holmes, and Mariano Vaz. So these are just some really some really talented women that's, that kind of brought season one and hopefully season two as well. And you can find us um, at any podcast uh a favorite podcast app and we're just your digital mental podcast from listening to it it seems like it's not just applicable to people working in science and research which is what I loved would you say that was a goal 
for it to apply to kind of anyone working anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Initially, I think when we planned it, it was also anyone in early career, early career research and public health uh, clinic, clinicians as well. Um, I think that was mainly anyone in science. So yeah, pretty much anyone. But we do some social um, uh, episodes. So I mean, it's up for anyone who's some of those uh, episodes I've sent to my friends who are lawyers and they're like, oh yeah, I should have probably listened to this a while ago. So it's it's fairly broad. But yeah, if you're interested in health, um, and mentorship check us out that's funny because i think we think of a lot of sort of disparities between various groups of people in the world and i wouldn't say mentorship is like the top one but when you say it it's so obvious i don't know what made you did you feel obviously you had a lot of good mentors at sanger but did you have good mentors prior to that or is it, was there anyone that sort of specifically spurred on your interest in science and Made you think you I'm, had a leg up on anyone else? My mentorship really changed how I thought of my career as soon as I got it. And I think it was more evident at Sangha and going forth and accumulating those types of mentors. And there's different types of mentors. You can have peer-to-peer mentors uh, as well as formal mentors as well as... And not always your manager or PI is your mentor, but they can be as well. Um, and having these type of kind of frank conversations about career that has nothing to do with the current project, but like where you're going um, was really important. I realized then, oh, I should have probably have, have had these type of conversations with um, even these kind of mentors you were given in undergrad whom I saw once in my three years yeah. <laughs> at Imperial. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so I don't think I would call him a mentor. <laughs> yeah. What do you look for in a mentor? Uh, for me, I mean, and this is, I've learned a lot through the podcast, but for me, um, it's a relationship. It has to, we have to both get on. I really, the ones, my strongest mentorship relationships are people that I, I genuinely like. And it's a really, we can be friends on or off the, the mentorship. So usually mentorship is like you're going for a specific goal. For example, if you want to, I don't know, apply for a grant in six months. So you're working very specifically towards a specific goal. But I'm more organic with my mentorship and I just kind of, um, I, I prefer friends, but I also understand like sometimes it's to a goal. So I need to, like if I'm arranging a meeting, I'm like, okay, I have to achieve this specific thing and then we give a timeline. So it can be outside of our friendship, our normal interaction, but there has to be a goal to the type of specific. I just can't, you know, a word, a term they use is chew the fat. So just wanting to chat is okay, but then sometimes it's really helpful to have a specific goal in mind. So you say that it was only really when you came to Sanger that you started getting kind of mentorships in kind of a formal way where you started to recognize them. Did you ever struggle to find, like get that relationship in uni with people who you related to? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think I did. I think for a long time, you know, you're thinking of them as your professors, so not really a mentor. And I think mm-hmm. I just kind of guesstimated <laughs> my, like, applications of stuff. So I kind of did my master's, and that was just my, oh, I like this course, I'll do it. Yeah. But there was no strategy to it. It's just things I liked. But I realized, and I think I should have taken more advantage. But I, had, I did have a informal, now I look back, at uh, one of the postdocs when I did my PhD was my mentor, who is now my friend. But I think I could have taken more advantage of it um, then. Not that it's been completely detrimental, but I tell people as early as you can now, get a mentor. Yeah. Yeah, I guess looking back at my university experience, doing a physics degree, 
pretty much every professor or lecturer was a middle-aged white guy. Ooh, mentors that don't look like you. For example, when I look at my sort of more formal and traditional type of mentoring with somebody more senior than you, if I really look at it, mine are all uh, white men, to be honest. <laughs> and I've learned a lot from them just because they may have experience. They've got time in, in the particular career I'm in. But once you bring in peer, when I brought in peer um, mentorship, oh, I have, it's, it's across the board. I have peers who are in uh, different, uh, completely different sectors. And I also have, they look more like me. They're all women and people of color. And then you can have more experiences. And I still learn a lot from people who are my peers, um, especially where maybe my mentors, or I don't have access again to my mentors as often, whereas my peers, I have more access to them. Um, and they may be going through the same thing with you and it becomes like a group type, oh, maybe this would be better. So I, I would really encourage peer or group um, mentorship. Yeah, I guess you should seek out mentors and maybe at university start thinking about getting that advice of how to tell you, tailor your career. But I guess, how do you start that conversation with someone? Oh, yeah. I think you have to just be uh, assertive and ask for it. To be honest, with mentorship, you just have to come out and ask. Once you've established some sort of rapport, um, just be like, listen, do you mind mentoring me in that specific thing? So it starts off as a specific thing. And for me, that's the best way to, uh, first of all, affirm that it's a mentorship first. And you could be friends. You could have gone out and had you know, a beer or a coffee with them. But at some point, if you wanted to be for a little bit more formal, uh, and then you have to drive it. So you're like, I, I need a mentor for this specific. I'll go back to the grant because it's most scientists will see. If you're applying for a grant or a fellowship or a maybe even you're applying for a job, you'd be like, oh, I really need um, help on this specific thing. Do you mind mentoring me through this? Um, the application is due in three months. So I think if we meet once a month for those, so that's three meetings and you have to completely arrange it and you plan it. So the only role of the mentor is to rock up and give you advice and uh, and and you plan the whole thing. If you need to provide slides, please do. Also never come unprepared to a mentorship meeting because I do have mentees always come prepared because if you rock up and you just, you know, they've kind of carved out time for you. So you have to make sure you're not wasting their time. Um, uh, the other advice is know that it's it's just like a, a doctor-patient um relationship it is between you it's a very specific so you don't go out there and start chatting about conversations you've had with your mentor it's a very very um it's a a relationship of trust yeah it's a relationship of trust so it's completely privy between the two of you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. do you think that I guess when you go through university your friends kind of become your mentors but in a very informal way do you think it's the responsibility of universities or do you think that people should be actively seeking peer mentors and kind of formalizing that themselves I'd encourage both so I think when you formalize it yourself it's a much more organic so as we both you both were nodding earlier when we said you know you were given some mentor in university that I never saw so again it feels forced but the other advantage of it being an organized mentorship scheme per se is that that person has agreed to be a mentor, so they've always carved time out for you. Whereas yeah. if it's a peer or somebody you've chosen, you know, you'd be trying to fight for time because it wasn't as. But if it's formalized, you both agreed. You've gone into an agreement of being able to be a mentor or mentee, so that is yeah. already time allocated to you, and it's it's something you'd ask of a mentor and a mentee when joining a scheme. So I'd say both work completely. Yeah. 
It's funny. Uh, so listening to you sort of talk about this, you sound so passionate and psyched. And uh, I think you sound like that when you talk about AMR. But it seems like this is like really where your passion lies right now. Do you think you felt that shift happening? Or did you just organically happen? Ooh, maybe it's organic because I do have passion for both. And the the podcast, although it's hard work, I like the content of it. I love the content of yeah. it. And I think giving other people this type of access, my goodness. Cause, and I'll say this from my experience growing up in Kenya. And I, I even I've interviewed people um, from different parts of the world. And they've said the same thing, especially in, I'd say, the global south. We understand what the global south means. It's like if you've come from a culture where mentorship wasn't really known, it's more formalized teaching. And mentorship, there's not even a word for it. So I remember trying to find mm. words in our kind of banner. There's some some languages, there's not even a word for like a mentor. It's usually teacher. So I think trying to shift that uh, focus. And I think countries are doing that now. They're realizing the, the, the joy of having a mentorship, either in your field or the field you want to be in. Super important, by the way. Um, what would you say is the difference then between a mentor and a teacher? Like, I think I know, but I don't know how to phrase it. Do you? Okay, this is now a challenge. Challenge accepted. Uh, <laughs> I didn't Google this. <laughs> yes, oh, there's no time to Google. <laughs> I'm so I would say a teacher is more uh, information transfer, and this is technical information transfer. I would say a mentor is more soft skills transfer. Okay. Um, it could be technical, but and, and I think in the States they do this, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember speaking to a professor in um, UCSC, and she did say they have, you can have a mentor for your publication, so they'd help you through like the teaching or like the writing technical aspect, so that's a mentor, and you put them on your paper. But then most of the time I would say mentorship is about soft skills and navigating your career, where the teacher is giving you actual technical knowledge. Um, so can we ask you what has been your proudest achievement? Crikey, this is the, I would say the hardest question. <laughs> the penultimate question. <laughs> exactly. I think I would say my, my PhD was a really, a great accomplishment and achievement because I was the first to have gotten a PhD, not only in my family, but technically in my village. So wow, big ups to me there. That was a really, really good time. Um Getting that doctor was really nice, but only my dentist calls me doctor. Everything else I haven't bothered to tell them that I'm a doctor. I think uh, just teaching how I've ended up, and as you said, I fell into teaching, so I really like teaching mathematics to everyone. I think it's really cool, and getting everyone to love technology and and biology at the same time is awesome. Uh, Oh, non-technical. I said I was going to say it, but maybe I shouldn't. My 30th birthday, I did a half... Um, a triathlon sprint to be honest is my greatest thing so that was 20k ride 5k run and 1k swim but I did it with some two friends who were foolish we were all very foolish and novices at this and we went swimming in I think it was April or May in a river in Cambridge which is freezing we did not have wetsuits do not do that have have a wetsuit no not at all I had um hyperventilation underwater is terrible so i do not <laughs> recommend anyone go swimming in any cambridge waters yeah without a wetsuit i was, yeah, that was taking it up but i'll get a wetsuit first yeah please do yeah i've learned the hard way <laughs>
But yeah, that, I'd say that was one of my greatest achievements. There we go. Are you gonna do another? Sprint yeah, the, yeah, yeah. If the bones still allow me to do that, sure. Why yeah, <laughs> I like swimming. I don't think the running part is great for the the old bones. No. I think now I'm looking for non. What do you call it? Uh, non uh, high impact training. Low impact training. That's it. That's the one. <laughs> I think. Um, the next question that we've been asking is sort of, what's your next big goal? I want to continue making science accessible, both to a non-technical audience, so like through public engagement, and just getting people excited about science, but also accessible science. Because I feel, and this is the same thing with uh, a technical audience and uh, teaching people bioinformatics. Uh, For me, doing science and having science knowledge shouldn't be limited to where you've come from or where you live. I I think everybody should have access. I think this is one great thing about maths. I've always thought this about maths and music. It's very accessible and anyone with any skill and wants to do it does it. So I think um, bioinformatics should really be in the same way. And I just want to plug again... uh, a really cool uh, initiative that I'm involved with through a, a friend, Nikki. So Nicola Mulder invited me, and I'm really honored to be in this um, training committee for the African Pathogen Initiative. So this is a um, a program that aims to enhance disease surveillance and public health, and this is creating a collaborative network across Africa. And, you know, this is a whole continent of genomics. So I'm really looking forward to see Africa, where I'm from, uh, really play a, a real main come to the main stage and do this so um yeah I'm, I'm really excited to just spread bioinformatics and and equitable access amazing and that's a great goal <laughs> i'm excited for you <laughs> thank you <laughs> oh before i go can i plug um one thing to, you need to find out more about juno we are at gbs gen that's one word gbs gen g-e-n Dot net. So yeah, just do check us out and you can also reach us. We're always looking for more um, partners all over the world. You know, the more the merrier. That's the the the, the slogan for, yeah, this is the slogan for <laughs> for genomics. So please, you know, do reach out to us on gbsgen.net and you can find um, how to reach us there. Cool. Great. Thanks. Thank you so much for yeah. coming today and talking to us. I know. Every time we do these, I'm like, hmm, I want to do all of that. I know. <laughs> no, thank you so much for inviting me. I had such a great talk with you guys. And you guys are doing something really cool. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Decoding Life podcast. We'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life Podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of the next time we released an episode. We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Canette Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Gopalasingam for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keens for our beautiful logo. Thank you.